Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The Thucydides trap is a phrase used to describe the phenomenon of a rising power and an established dominant power almost always breaking into conflict. It's supposed to imply a self-fulfilling prophecy, because even if the incumbent power eventually wins, it more often than not does so at far too great a cost. In that context, it's worth considering if the current trade war between China and the US may not just be a prelude to a new technological cold war between the two powers, but a much hotter and dangerous one for the global economy. This is Alpha Chat, a project from the Financial Times and the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance at Brown University. I'm Isabella Kaminska. A number of geopolitical and financial risks is stalking the global economy, pointing to a possible recession in 2020. Key among them is the US-China trade war and general protectionism in the global market, according to Noriel Rubini, professor at NYU's Stern School of Business and CEO of Rubini Macro Associates. Already famed for his economic prediction skills, he nonetheless points out it's still a question of if, not when. Well, I, I don't believe that the recession occur mechanically in a deterministic uh, cycle, even if in the U.S. experience, on average, about uh, 10 years a recession has occurred. But there have been, you know, plenty of exceptions. You know, Australia has not had a recession for almost uh, 25 years, of course, they've been riding on the China boom and uh, demand for commodities. Uh, usually, recession occur not because uh, expansion die of a natural debt, but because there is a shock. And a shock could be, say, an all price shock, could be that uh, for other reason, inflation gets out of control, the Fed is behind the curve, and then they have to put the foot on the brake, and that slowdown causes a recession. And the third type of it is when you have an asset and credit bubble that gets out of control and then the goods bust and then the financial and banking crisis causes a credit crunch and a bust of housing or other credit markets and then you have a recession like 1990 and of course the Great Recession of uh, 2007, 2009. So we need to find uh, the macro uh, triggers, the policy mistakes or the financial imbalances or the uh, geopolitical other shock that trigger that recession. Uh, what I'm arguing is not that uh, we need to have a recession next year because we have been already in 10 years of expansion, but rather that there is a long list of factors. All is one of them, but I would say that the key one that I pointed out a year ago in my piece on a 2020 recession was the risk of uh, a generalized sets of protectionism and trade wars within US and not just China, but also other trading partners, but I was particularly concerned about the US-China. And I pointed out that this would not be just a trade war, but it will become also a technology war, as the US fears that China is going to dominate uh, some of the technologies of the future. So a trade war, a tech war, and also a geopolitical war. I pointed out that in addition to all shock and trade shocks, tariffs, there are also other 
U.S. policy that may lead to stagflation, slower growth, and higher inflation. Uh, one is restriction to immigration that uh, reduced the supply of labor in a tight labor market. Another one, as I pointed out, was uh, restrictions to trade in technology, data, semiconductors, and so on, that then uh, imply deglobalization, balkanization, and uh, disruption of global supply chains. If the U.S. were to go ahead with uh, keeping uh, Huawei on the list and not allowing them the exemption they have right now of buying uh, for a few months U.S. semiconductors, uh, you'll have at first a massive disruption of the entire global supply chain of tech and semiconductors. And anyhow, after what happened with ZTE and now Huawei, the Chinese have decided that over the next few years they're going to rely on semiconductors produced either at home or in uh, safe countries and allies, but that's going to take several years. So, you know, the tech shock and this disruption in tech uh, and global supply chains is going to be a massive shock. And the U.S. is now imposing severe restriction on inward FTI not just by China, but also other countries, and not just in tech, but in a wide range of sectors. So you're in a world in which you're going to restrict trade in goods, in services, in capital, in labor, in technology, in data, and so on and so on. And therefore, this is a major kind of supply-side shock to the global economy. Uh, and the combination of all these factors and the U.S.-China trade and tech war that leads then to a broader geopolitical cold war given the rivalry between us and china could be the trigger if it escalates from the current level of tension to a full-scale trade and tech war could be the trigger for a global recession by next year and if the shocks are large enough my view is that even if the fed were to take insurance cuts even if the fed were to more aggressively cut rates more than 50 basis points, even if the ECB, BOJ, and other central banks were to ease, if the shock is large enough, uh, we are not going to avoid the recession. Same thing happened in 07, 09. Central bank aggressively cut rates. The Fed at that time had plenty of headroom from 525 all the way to zero. This time around, they're only having 250 basis points of headroom. Uh, ECB and BOJ have much less, they're already in negative policy rates. So central banks have more constraint on how much they can do in terms of conventional and conventional. The shocks can be severe, and if the shocks are severe and central banks are aggressive, uh, we're not gonna avoid the recession. Uh, meaning uh, that if there is a full-scale trade and tech war between US and China, is one of the three scenarios out there, uh, then we'll have a recession, even if you have aggressive monetary policy response. I want to revisit the the idea of the central banks basically having run out of um, bullets in a little bit, but I'm going back to China and the US specifically. In your recent piece, you talk about what you describe as um, the Thucydides trap um, and this sort of idea that because one is an aspiring power and the other one is a legacy power, there is inevitably going to be some sort of standoff at some point. Because obviously at the moment, when you look at the China trade war, there's a lot of very emotive coverage and, and everyone's putting a, a political spin with respect to how they view Trump and whether he, he catalyzed it. But I think what I found interesting about your piece is that it, it was very pragmatic and it, it and it's sort of very concretely pointed out there are just reasons for why the U.S. might be uh, concerned about China's uh, trade behavior in recent years. But equally, China has its own 
view on why it should be allowed to influence politics beyond its own borders. So where are you going with this uh, analogy of the Thucydides trap? Is the idea here that we will eventually end up in a sort of Cold War type um, reinvention? Yes, it is. You know, in that piece, I did not take a normative approach of saying U.S. is right, China is wrong, versus versus China is right and U.S. is wrong. I took more like an historical and geopolitical realist approach that says, uh, you know, what happens when you have a new rising power facing an existing power? You know, I was in November of 2015, a year before Trump was elected in China as part of a delegation. We went to the Great Hall of the People, met Xi Jinping, uh, President Xi Jinping, and he started the first 10 minutes of his remarks totally unprompted, literally speaking about the Thucydides trap and arguing uh, that uh, history is not deterministic and the rise of China will be peaceful. And as you know, Thucydides was the great Greek historian. They wrote the history of how a rise in Athens uh, became a threat to Sparta. And then this confrontation between rising and existing established power led to war. And this was uh, two years before Graham Allison from the Harvard School of Government uh, wrote the book, uh, Destined to War, Will U.S. and China uh, Avoid the Two-City Trap? And what it writes in the book is that in 12 out of uh, 16 historical episodes, whenever you had a rising power facing an existing one, actual hot war has occurred. Uh, 12 out of 16. Now, I do not expect for now a hot war between US and China, but the reality is that you have a power is rising, 1.4 billion people, even if the population will shrink, is going to become the number one economic, financial, trading power in the world. Any power that is rising, even if it's not aggressive, has to have a defense to defend shipping lanes and his own interests. And therefore, some of the military buildup of China in Asia around the world is totally defensive. U.S. instead thinks of it as being aggressive. U.S. doesn't want to uh, abandon his own hegemony that has had since World War II in Asia around the world. And therefore, uh, to see this trap will occur. Uh, And the question is going to be whether it's severe or is less severe and whether at least it's going to be only a cold war as opposed to a hot war. So regardless of whether US and China reach a deal on trade in the next few months, and I think it's not likely, that greater rivalry about technology, about AI, about 5G, about who's gonna dominate the industries of the future, on restricting trading capital, even restricting Chinese students and researchers from coming to the US, restriction of transfer of technology, of science, of information, of data, and privacy. We are on a collision course. This Cold War will occur, regardless of whether the Chinese blame it on the US and the US on China. And both sides, of course, have done things that from a global point of view are not desirable and optimal. So as an historian, you have to think of it as realistically, not how the world should be, but how the world is likely to be. And therefore, I see this Cold War coming. To what degree do you think that is still being fueled by ideological differences? I mean, you mentioned in the piece that, you know, the Chinese pursuing a very Orwellian surveillance society is something that doesn't square very well with Western values. Do you think those are the sorts of concessions that the US wants out of China, that it will not be pursuing that sort of agenda beyond its core borders? And especially when you look at the Belt and Road 
uh, initiative. There is this sort of suspicion that fundamentally it's all about gaining more and more power for China. And that, I would imagine, means quid pro quo, the dispersal of the Chinese ideological sort of position on things. I think that actually this time around the ideological differences are less than in the Cold War between the U.S., and the Soviet Union, where you had on one side, you know, beacon of capitalism and market economy as opposed to socialism and communism. Because uh, first of all, China, while being nominally socialist or communist, it's a, you know, it's a market economy, a mixed market economy, call it uh, state capitalism. And they're not trying to spread the communist ideology around the world. And on the US side, at least under Trump, uh, in the past we were, uh, defending, you know, liberal democracy, freedom, rule of law, and other things. But uh, uh, Trump and his U.S. administration really doesn't care about that stuff. So actually, the ideological differences are really um, minimal. And yes, uh, China is creating maybe a surveillance state, but, you know, in the U.S. Uh, is not maybe the state that controls all those data, but in the U.S. between... Uh, you know, Facebook and Google and Amazon and you name it, uh, you know, they have huge massive control on private data and there are issues of privacy, even the US and these great uh, tech giants are becoming even more powerful. So we may become a private Orwellian society as opposed to one dominated by the state. So I think ideology is the list of it. This is simply a sheer quest for power. Who's gonna be controlling the global economy and uh, global geopolitical uh, role of controlling uh, the, the seas, the Eurasian mass and so on, has very little to do with ideology by itself. It's really a pure uh, Thucydides trap in my view. But you do say that um, you think China wants the capacity to shape global standards on things. What would be China's position? I mean, what, what are the standards that it's trying to influence? What's our problem with, with their perspective on how these global standards are being shaped? Well, you know, the standards of the global order, economic and trading, but also geopolitical, you know, were set by the victorious US and its allies after World War II. And we did create, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, eventually WTO, build up the UN and so on. And those are institutions that were Western based on Western ideas, even if many of them had uh, universal values. You know, China started to have influence in some of these institutions, but they got tired by the fact that in spite of their own uh, economic weight, uh, their uh, shares and shares in the Bretton Woods institution like IMF and World Bank were less and they started creating say alternative institutions like the BRICS banks, uh, AIB and you name it. Now I don't know what is the right system for example for dealing with uh, international trade in goods, in services, in capital, in labor, in data, in privacy. Uh, there are a spectrum of views, and most of the traditional WTO dealt mostly with goods, barely with services, let alone capital, labor, data, technology, information. I'm saying is that if we do want to have a new global economic order that doesn't lead to full deglobalization, full balkanization, certainly China, India, and other powers have to be at the table and shape together with US and Europe uh, those uh, rules of the game. 
and maybe there is, in spite of the rivalry, and that's my hope, a way of containing the trade and technological and other tensions, even rules of the game about uh, cyber warfare that prevent deglobalization and balkanization is going to be a disaster for the world. If we're not able, you'll have a U.S. system and you have a Chinese slash Asian system, each one of them with separate AI, separate internet, separate 5Gs, separate rules on trade, on investment, and so on, and we'll have full deglobalization. And that's not the world I want to be in, but uh, I'm saying that both sides have to sit down and figure out those, those are, what are the terms of that and have less to do with politics and what you do domestically with your population. Whether we like it or not, uh, China is an authoritarian country, but they believe that their own uh, benevolent, technocratic, uh, authoritarian system led by AI and a bunch of uh, Mandarin bureaucrats uh, uh, gives a much more material wealth and success to the collective than our Mimi society, where there is gridlock, dysfunctionality, and where liberal democracy is failing. So, I mean, those are ideological differences we're not going to bridge, but we have to live in a world in which different uh, uh, great powers are going to have different political systems, but we can still live and share together this planet because there are plenty of problems that are requiring collective public goods, uh, and we have to resolve them, including the rules of the game on how you deal with each other internationally. It's a fascinating sort of prediction if things go wrong, i.e. that you get this bifurcated world between China and US, but also you say that countries won't necessarily be able to stay neutral. These two powers will in some ways demand that third parties align themselves to one or the other. And in that context, I was just thinking, you know, obviously we saw the Hong Kong protests. What happens, do you think, if this keeps escalating? What happens to financial centres like Hong Kong? Well, if we do go towards a full-scale uh, trade, tech, and Cold War, and that's certainly one of the three possible scenarios. Uh, the other two are uh, you get a deal on trade and tech, and the other one is uh, this war continues but is contained and doesn't fully escalate. And I think that we are in that middle scenario right now. We hope that we get a deal on trade and tech, but the risk is that the sides are escalating the words of words and also the actual action that's going to lead us to a full-scale trade tech and a trade war. But in that full-scale war, essentially both sides are going to say either you are with me or you are against me in terms of your trade, financial, technological links, and so on. Either you use my 5G or you use the Chinese 5G. Either you use my AI or the Chinese ones. Either you use uh, uh, my technologies and tech of the future or the Chinese. And unfortunately, the problem is that many of the countries are in between, whether in Europe or Asia, Middle East, uh, Africa, Latin America. Today, they're actually doing more trade and investment with China than with their allies like the US, uh, even in Europe. But uh, from a geopolitical point of view, uh, Europe, uh, Korea, Japan, some of the Middle Eastern countries and so on are allies of the United States. So economically, this country want to do business with China and business with the US uh, and doing today more business with China. Geopolitically, they are still close to the US and the US is going to say, sorry, given the threat of Huawei's 5G, you cannot use it. And they're sitting there on the fence and they don't know what to do. So the damage coming from balkanization is not just a world split between US and China, but uh, everybody in between will have to take one side or the other. 
for a while they're going to try to straddle, but uh, gradually over time, if it's a full-scale war, like during the Cold War, you cannot straddle. Either you're on one side or the other side. And during the Cold War, it was easy because... Uh, you know, Soviet Union was a declining economic and demographic power, and there was almost no trade between U.S. and Soviet Union. So there were sanctions, did not disrupt anything in global trade and finance. Now we're fully integrated, U.S., China, Asia, Europe, in this global economy, and to disintegrate and to deglobalize and to balkanize is going to be a royal mess that's going to cause a U.S. and global recession in the short run. In some ways, it's probably even more complicated than Brexit. Um, Much more complicated than Brexit. <laughs> Brexit which I didn't is, think was possible. <laughs> but yeah. um, I mean, I don't want to laugh because it's it, it's quite a frightening uh, scenario. But yeah, Well, is, is Brexit to the power of 10? Because uh, Brexit is a you know, small open economy trying to disengage from Europe uh, and they're going to maintain, even in a hard Brexit, some trade, financial and other links and maybe there is going to be a soft Brexit, but this is this is a Brexit to the power of ten. Before we get to Brexit, I did want to ask you about that. In the in the China context, do you think um, Hong Kong then would obviously have no choice but to align? I mean, it is obviously Chinese, but um, the protests show that there is a certain level of hostility and outreach to the West still. So, will Hong Kong be be vulnerable? And given its importance in the in the international sort of financial system where does that leave china especially and i would also ask you know we've talked about the vulnerability of the um, western central banks but what's what's the pboc i mean in a trade war if it does escalate china too will be forced to kind of stimulate its own economy i would imagine so um what's the kind of you know the debt levels there are um at relatively high levels so it's not coming from a total position of strength well, you know, on Hong Kong, you know, when there was the agreement for the handover, uh, the agreement was, you know, until 2047, you had one country and two systems, and China would respect the political freedoms of uh, Hong Kong and so on. But the reality is that, you know, in the last few years, with uh, President Xi Jinping becoming more authoritarian, and then you had the umbrella movement, uh, the, this, the Chinese have decided to slowly, slowly tighten the screws uh, and it's not been just overnight with this extradition law but as I go every year to Hong Kong every year slowly slowly you have more Chinese control of levers of powers and the influence who are going to be the ruling you know people in Hong Kong and so on and now you have a key element because until now you know, you could protest against Tiananmen, against whatever not you want freely and you knew you were safe in Hong Kong uh, but, you know, if you are a dissident uh, and then uh, you commit, unquote, a crime, uh, according to China, not only you could be arrested and up six months in jail like some umbrella movement uh, dissidents did, but, you know, they can extradite you to China and you may rot uh, for the rest of your life in Chinese uh, prisons. So that's why this matter is more sensitive than others. I would have thought that maybe China would more slowly and gradually absorb uh, Hong Kong in its own economic, legal, political system. But I think that this escalation of the Cold War between US and China has led them to say, I'll be tougher. 
on Hong Kong. They might start also to be tougher uh, on Taiwan, among other things, and so on, rather than be patient. So I think that the rise of the Cold War and this trap is part of the reasons why the Chinese now are more aggressive in pushing stuff that, of course, causes a reaction. Already people in Hong Kong, and I see it for the last few years, they are self-censoring dissidents, journalists, uh, artists, uh, anybody there. You are more careful to what you say because you could get in trouble. You start with self-censorship, then it becomes formal censorship, and then becomes something like extradition law. And if you say things you shouldn't, you end up uh, in jail and you get extradited. It's a slippery slope. I fear that in spite of these protests, uh, we're going to be on that slippery slope slowly and gradually, maybe not totally overnight, but effectively, politically, China has already taken over Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong can still remain a meaningful financial center as long as they maintain the rule of law for financial services, right? I mean, that's what China has been doing, say, we're going to open up our financial markets, we're going to build up Shanghai and others as important regional financial centers, and so on. Now, if there's a real crackdown, people are going to get nervous, but uh, if they maintain the rule of law, at least on financial services, uh, maybe people are going to still use uh, Hong Kong as a major financial center, and it is still one. Of course, if they have a full Cold War between U.S. and China, and now, you know, some Canadians uh, embroiled in the Huawei case have been arrested. And I know of U.S. corporate uh, leaders who are worried about going to China. And we know that actually some Chinese were literally arrested in their hotel in Hong Kong and taken over on the other side. Maybe if the tension rise, if you're a Westerner, you have to say, well, what happens if I live and work or visit Hong Kong and something happens, maybe even a trade spot between uh, U.S. and China, and I become actually a paria. I become a pawn in that. I could be arrested and I could be extradited. If that were to happen, then uh, Hong Kong as a major financial center would really diminish, or at least those who are expats that are a significant part of that offshore financial center might start to think twice whether they should be in Hong Kong or go back to London or New York or move to Singapore. We are not yet there, but that's a risk if there is a really violent escalation of this stress. Do you think these tensions would have come to a head irrespective of Trump? Or do you think Trump has definitely been the catalyst? Uh, I think that with Trump, they've accelerated in a way that makes this Cold War coming sooner and faster and more violent. Uh, but as I said, you know, President Xi Jinping was telling us about the risk of a two-city trap a year before uh, Trump uh, was elected or he was barely running. And historians and geopolitical experts have been saying, you know, uh, the rise of China is going to imply some degree of rivalry. You know, even under the Obama administration, Obama saw the rise of China. U.S. has had uh, hegemony in terms of the security of Asia since World War II, wanted to maintain that hegemony. Xi Jinping said, no, we don't want U.S. hegemony, but we want equality geostrategic equality in Asia. U.S. says, no, we want to maintain our hegemony in Asia. And Obama made that famous pivot to Asia. Now, the pivot to Asia could not be just sending 500 Marines to Australia. It had to have an economic pillar to anchor ASEAN and other countries uh, to the U.S. rather than China or have them be on both sides of it. And that uh, pillar, the economic pillar, was TPP that would have led these countries to have more trade and financial links with the U.S. But uh, 
Trump comes and they're literally the first week he's in power, the first thing he does, he says, I'm going to get out of TPP. So all these countries that were sitting on the fence and want to be in good terms with US and China and build more links with US uh, while they build links with China and that the TPP, uh, there is no TPP at the time where China is the BRICS bank and the AIAB bank and it has its Silk Road and it has the BRI and has its own trade RCEP initiative. So gradually the forces of gravity without TPP are gonna move all these countries gradually and slowly into the economic trading and financial sphere of influence of China. And with that also political and geopolitically, if you're Australian, you do so much business with China, politically you cannot uh, attack China on uh, rule of law, democracy, human rights, and all that stuff. You have just to shut up and self-censor yourself because so much of your success depends on China. So unfortunately, Trump on one side has escalated this war but on the other side, he has absolutely no strategy on how to maintain a significant, if not hegemony. I think hegemony at this point is the past. The best that US could achieve is to have a strategic balance uh, between US and China and Asia. Even that one at this point is at risk. And the idea that US is gonna rely on a few allies uh, to contain China, whether it's Australia, Japan, and India, I think for lots of very good reason is uh, totally far-fetched. That's the strategy to try to contain China is not gonna work. And if you try to contain China, because under Obama, the strategy is we cooperate on many things, we compete on others, and we're trying to maintain good relations. Right now, instead, the new national security strategy of the US is China is a strategic competitor and rival, and we have to literally contain it. A rising power of, like China, you contain it, is gonna be rightly become defensive and then aggressive. There is no way that you can have containment of China without eventually having risk of not just a cold war, but eventually a risk even of a hot war. Uh, they're playing with fire, uh, literally, with China. And where does um, it leave Europe and specifically the UK? What are your latest thoughts on Brexit and the growing likelihood of a hard Brexit in October? You know, I mean, first of all, Europe and Eurozone is in the middle. It's its own sets of problems and fragilities, economic, political, and after the EU elections, uh, you know, these populists, they're not in power, but they're going to influence the debate on Europe. Uh, you know, on Brexit, I'm still of the view that I'm not sure that we'll have... Uh, hard Brexit, and I'm not sure for the following reasons. Suppose that they choose Boris Johnson or whoever as the, the new PM on a hard Brexit uh, campaign, meaning I go try to do a deal. If there's no deal, I'll have hard Brexit. Uh, there is not a majority right now in Parliament for a no-deal Brexit. They voted actually against it. So Boris Johnson is going to go to Brussels. Brussels is going to tell them uh, essentially F off uh, because you've been a jerk and no deal on the backstop or anything. Then he comes back uh, and then uh, there may be a, a vote of no confidence against him. And then he says, we should have a hard Brexit. But then there is a majority in Parliament says, no, sorry, no deal Brexit is not acceptable. Then it's going to collapse. And then there are only three scenarios. You go to new elections and anybody could win as a combination of things. Or two, gradually there is an increased majority of people who believe that we should have a second referendum. If you have election or second referendum, the Europeans are going to give uh, some extension beyond October 31st uh, until those elections or referendum occurs. Or there is also a third scenario that you form... Uh, 
a minority government, say, led by Labour, not Corbyn, but some moderate, because you have 14 days between the time when, say, Boris Johnson government collapses to form a new government before you need to go to election. And there's not uh, unlikely that maybe uh, you form that government because many Tories know that, uh, you know, if you don't form that minority government, uh, you go for elections and the Tories can be trounced, uh, given what happened in the EU election with Farage. So, you know, you may have a minority government led by, not Corbyn, by some other Labourite who's trying to negotiate another deal with the EU. Is on a short leash. Uh, that government can collapse any point with a no confidence vote. But maybe that government is able to uh, make a deal for a softer Brexit with the EU, and that deal could be passed by Parliament, uh, or eventually you end up with elections and uh, second referendum. So, but I would say that the probability of a no deal hard Brexit crashing out on October 31st to me looks like still a relatively low probability. And I mean, Macron has warned that it would constitute a default. So um, it would be a shock for the credit markets. Or do you think that's not the case? While the damage from a, a hard Brexit is bigger on the UK rather than the EU because of the trade links, uh, the shock to business confidence coming from hard Brexit could be severe enough that actually that could be a tipping point for even the European Union and the Eurozone economy go into a recession. Because suppose you have hard Brexit and it's a bit of a chaos in spite of the preparations and you have long lines at Calais, over every port and you have some ripple effects on financial markets, even if they say we prepared for everything then that shock to business confidence implies that you already have all this other global uncertainty, US and China and Mexico and potential auto tariffs and you name it and politics and EU elections and populists, you know, uh, we're already in a massive slowdown because given the policy uncertainties, uh, there's an option value of waiting. If you are any business in Europe, in the UK, in US, in China, emerging market, you don't do any more CapEx because you don't know how the world is going to be. So there's already a CapEx strike that is going to push the global economy into a stall. You get a hard Brexit and even in the EU, that shock implies then a collapse of business sentiment that pushes the EU uh, into a recession. So people say US greater bargaining power and leverage in hard Brexit because most of the pain is on the UK. Not true. In this very fragile moment where everything is fragile and everything is uncertain, the shock of hard Brexit could hurt the European Union and the Eurozone economy as much as the UK. And then you end up into a true a European and Eurozone recession. And I think the Europeans themselves realize it. They're tired of these Brits not knowing what they want, but uh, jumping off the cliff of a hard Brexit on October 31st is too risky for both sides. And if uh, the Brits have not yet come to reason and figure out in their schizophrenic brain what they want to do, I think that the Europeans are going to have no choice but give them an, another extension until another election, until another referendum, until another minority government, until maybe you even reverse uh, so the can, Brexit. We, there is no choice because the alternative is a jump into uh, the unknown, and the unknown might be just a cliff and you, you all crash. So even a Macron who said enough is enough, and many other Europeans, I, I was told in Brussels and Berlin and Paris recently, enough is enough, October 31st first is a hard deadline. Unfortunately, it's, it's not, not going to be a hard deadline. <laughs> but that's <laughs> that just invites the possibility that we live in this limbo forever, um, like Schrodinger's cat, both alive and dead. 
but better this limbo than the alternative, right? In the limbo, the UK is effectively still having full access to the single market. The limbo is great for the UK. even if you had a deal <laughs> for two years, you have full access to the single market, and then you have to negotiate the transition. So a limbo is not good and affects negatively business confidence, but that limbo and full access to the single market is better than hard Brexit, where it's like a shock to the system. It's not ideal, but between the two, I'd rather be in that limbo. So we're starting to run out of time. And obviously, one of the topics I did want to ask you about in in some sort of length was the emerging cryptocurrency um, parallel monetary system that is supposedly going to take over the world very shortly. Both you and I have critiqued the sector quite strongly. Is there anything that has recently come to your attention that um, sort of corroborates or has changed your mind or, or moderated your views in any shape or form? Or to the contrary, are you doubling up? Um, no, I maintain my, my views. Um, in spite of the recent uh, rally in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrency, you know, in 17 they went uh, Bitcoin from 1,000 to 20, and then in 2018 it crashed from 20 down to 3. Now it's gone up to 7. People say it's the beginning of a new spring. I don't believe it because um, fundamentally these are not currencies. A currency has to be a unit of account, means of payment, stable store of value. And as we know, neither Bitcoin nor other are. Uh, they cannot scale, you know, five transactions per second and with proof of uh, work and alternative like proof of stake uh, are not going to work or going to lead to massive concentration and centralization of power and oligopolies. So the issue of uh, scalability has not been resolved. Everything is uh, centralized uh, from uh, miners to exchanges, to developers, to concentration of wealth is not a stable store of value uh, over goods or services or even wealth because the value can be going up and down 10, 20% literally in a matter of hours. And nobody is using it as a unit of account. So I think even more than the past uh, in stable advanced economies with low inflation is not going to become a means of payment. I think that one is completely dead, dead and not improving in spite of all the talk about stuff. And then, you know, then people have realized it and then people say, okay, cryptocurrencies and shit coins and so on are not going to become the base of a new monetary system, but we have this great new technology of blockchain or DLT. Uh, but even in that technology, I think the reality is the following one. Uh, because everybody is excited about corporate uh, DLT. What they call blockchain is blockchain in name only. It's private, uh, not public. It's centralized, is not decentralized, is permissioned, is not permissionless. So they call it blockchain because it's sexy and it sells, but it's nothing but a glorified uh, distributed database. And we've had distributed database forever. You know, I use. Google Docs with colleagues and we permission the five, 10 folks who can use it together, share and change document has been there forever. And there are plenty of other technology. Nobody would call them DLT. Nobody would call them, uh, you know, blockchain, just distributed uh, databases and so on. And those things are great and they're going to be growing. But I have nothing to do with DLT. I have nothing to do with blockchain. And there is no corporation, private or public, no government is going to be willing to put all of their uh, balance sheet, PNL, uh, relation with customers and clients on on a public ledger, and all these attempts among uh, 
major banks to form even these R3 and other coalition have failed because at the end of the day, they have to share data and they're all very territorial about their data and they cannot resolve these things. Uh, that's why, you know, there have been tons of studies. You know, the, the people said we can use blockchain in, uh, say, saving uh, the world, the poverty, refugees, giving identity, banking the unbanked. There's been a study of 43 examples of using uh, blockchain technology for doing goods for the world. Out of these 43 cases, case studies, proof of principle, zero Zero cases have succeeded. There's not a single case. So all these people who say blockchain here, blockchain there, and everybody's now adopting it, they're all proof of concepts, experiment. They have all 100% completely failed. And the thing that they call blockchain are not blockchain. So to finish off very quickly, I thought I'd ask you, in the event of a 2020 global recession, how do these speculative shitcoins fare? What's the what's the likelihood that they, they survive the recession? You know, first of all, 81% of them were scams in the first place. 11% of them were dead or failing. So only 8% of all these ICOs were traded. And in 2018, actually, even of those that were traded, literally even the top 10 lost 92% of their value, while the other ones lost 99% of their value. So we had a year, actually, there was a risk off. 2018 was entire year of risk off with tons of problems and risk in the global economy started in February and reached the peak in Q4 uh, where you had worries about China, US, Europe, the Fed, hard landing, trade wars, Italy exit, uh, uh, Brexit, uh, EU election, you name it. And you had a massive sell off. 20% collapse in US and global equities. And during that fourth quarter, you know, uh, the shit coins and the bitcoins of the world were still heading south and staying south. Uh, there was absolutely, absolutely no idea that uh, when there is a risk off, uh, those are the things people are going to go into. If there is a real crisis, people are going to go into cash. They're going to go into bonds of safe countries. They may go partially depending on which financial risks there are, maybe into gold. There is a wide range of uh, assets that are safe havens. There are currencies like the dollar, like the yen, like the Swiss franc and so on. But the idea that, you know, if there is a U.S. and a global recession, financial crisis, people are going to go into the safety of Bitcoin or thousands of shit coins when they've been totally in disrepute and that most of them have collapsed. That's a total joke. And on that note, I think I will invite you to come back again and join us to specifically talk about cryptocurrency. But the economy was also very important. So I felt we had to cover both bases. Nouriel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me today, Izzy. Alpha Chat is produced by Dan Richards at the Rhodes Centre for International Economics and Finance at Brown University and Amy Keane from the Financial Times. Please email us on alphachat at ft.com for any reason at all. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams 
who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 